Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family. Today we're going to be talking about understanding the new fertility clinic success stats. I think you're really going to find this show helpful. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. I think the most important outcome is the one that we highlighted first in the report, which is the um, cumulative singleton delivery rate per egg retrieval. So I think that would be the number that I would look at uh, first. to say, well, what are the chances that I'm going to have um, in a, for a given egg retrieval? Uh, how did this clinic do in delivering a, a singleton child, which is, again, the healthiest, uh, more likely to be a, a full-term birth child uh, from that cycle? I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility and Adoption Education and Support Nonprofit, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We're a weekly radio show, and we use the podcast model. That way you can listen whenever and wherever you want. It also gives you the ability to subscribe. So whatever app you're listening to, just click on the subscribe button, and that will work. If you are listening through your computer uh, on our website, it's easy. Just go to subscribe there and click on that button. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring is pleased to offer their IVF Greenlight program, providing discounts of up to 50% on select IVF products. All cash-paying patients are eligible, and unlike other programs, there are no financial requirements. To get more info, you can go to their website, ivfgreenlight.com. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors, who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Fairfax Cryobank. They have been a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years and are dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. We also have Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They are a recognized scientific and patient care leader in the field of infertility with 10 offices and 21 physicians throughout New Jersey. They maintain an IVF delivery rate well above the national average. In addition to those gold sponsors, we also have other sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an infertility service provider, please consider choosing one from the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on the service provider page of our website. You can search by location, services provided, just a host of factors that we think are important. By using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. Today we're going to be talking about the new infertility clinic success statistics. Boy, that was hard for me to get out. Um, that have just been released uh, by SART, the Society of Assisted Reproductive Technologies. Our guests today to talk about these new stats are 
Dr. Brad Van Voris. He is a professor or a professor and director of reproductive endocrinology and infertility at the University of Iowa College School of Medicine. He is also the current president of the Society of Assisted Reproductive Technology. We also have Dr. Art Kesselbaum. He is a reproductive endocrinologist and medical director of RMA Philadelphia in Central Pennsylvania. Welcome both of you to Creating a Family. Thank you. Good morning. Well, we any any discussion of of fertility clinic success statistics really needs to begin with an understanding of where people can find these stats. We at Creating a Family refer people to these stats all the time. We usually refer people to the we call it the SART SART Society of Assisted Reproductive Technology stats, but they are also found at the Center for Centers for Disease Control, the CDC. Both places have stats, but these stats are not identical. Um, Dr. Van Voris, what is the distinction between the two, and and which one should people look at? Well, as uh, president of SART, I think people should look at the SART uh, website. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that was a a softball question. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, don't worry, I'll uh, get some hard ones coming. (laughs) By law, uh, clinics are required to report to the CDC, but, uh, and so that, contains nearly all uh, IVF centers in the United States, but SART, uh, a large majority of centers have chosen to go through SART to ultimately get their data to the CDC. So we're, we serve somewhat as an intermediate, uh, an intermediate step, I guess, toward the data getting to the CDC. But there are certain advantages to being a, a SART member. Um, we, we do our own quality assurance. Uh, we t- uh, monitor advertising. Uh, we, we have a number of uh, things that we do that we think make our centers uh, centers of excellence uh, if they are, are members of our organization. So in addition, one major advantage of SART is that we tend to get our data out much sooner than what they get out from the CDC. Well, yeah, at least what, certainly a year, but is it up to two years? The data that you're yeah, displaying well, yeah, is, what, 2014? Are you? I should have looked this up. 2014, just yeah. You're 2014, and CDC is what? Mm-hmm. What? What? What are they displaying right now? Well, I think they're at 2013, but I, I haven't okay. looked at that recently. Yeah, I have to admit, I usually look at SART as well. Uh, mm-hmm. So I haven't looked at CDC uh, right. recently either. They're 2013, I believe, right now. So you guys mm-hmm. are at least, and and you said that the majority of clinics. Um, it's, it really is the vast majority. It's well over, what, 80% of clinics report to SART, whereas 100% report to CDC. Is that a fair thing? Yeah, that, that's correct. It's, it's over 80% report directly to, to SART, who then passes on the information to the CDC. Uh, there are a few clinics that don't report to either organization, uh, but by law they're supposed to. Yeah, well, that would be a major red flag if they don't report to either one. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The um, All right, uh, Dr. Castlebaum, when did the new statistics, the, 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 well, I should back up and say, SART has changed the format for the statistics, uh, and they were just released, the stats under this new format were just released. Do you know about when they were released? You don't have to give me the week, but the month of this year that they were rolled out? Yeah, they've just come online. Yeah, and they're uh, now. There's they, a... Yeah, April was it April uh, April one? Today, 
today was the first day that they're available publicly. This is uh, Dr. Van Oh, Boller my gosh. Speaking. I did not realize that. I actually yeah. thought it was mm-hmm. April 1. All right. Talking about, you know, a hot news story, you know. <laughs> yeah. Right. I did not realize it was today. I thought it was actually uh, last week or the week before. Excellent. All right. So, uh, yeah, current events at its most current. Um, so why, Dr. Kasselbaum, was there a decision to change? Because the old stats have been functioning for years. Um, and whether we loved them or hated them, they, we were certainly used to them. So why make the changes? Uh, technology and, and practice patterns. Uh, so it, it turns out over the last several years, practices have been freezing more embryos. And part of that has been recognizing that there might be reasons to freeze elevated progesterones, thin uterine lining, um, overstimulated patients. And part of it is technology, the ability to do pre-implantation genetic screening. Uh, many of these embryos are biopsied and then frozen, and then it takes typically a couple of weeks for the embryo data uh, about whether or not the embryo is genetically normal or not to come back. And so the fact that more embryos were being put in the freezer and then used subsequently um, was not really well accounted for in the old system, uh, but is, is beautifully accounted for in the new system. And there are other advantages to the new uh, database as well in terms of, of really focusing in on the importance of a singleton delivery. Uh, twins, as we know, have increased risks uh, not limited to cerebral palsy and death in the first year and other developmental challenges. Uh, and the new START 2014 data really places a premium on singleton delivery, which I think we would all uh, agree is really the the gold standard for what we're all looking to accomplish with in vitro fertilization. Yeah, I um, just uh, for the record, I love the new stats. Um I've spent some time this morning with them and uh and and delivery of a healthy child, you know, which is ultimately our um <laughs> the goal that we're all uh seeking. All right, so the the reason the changes were made was acknowledging the changes in the practice of uh, of uh, infertility treatment the freezing more and and you know there's uh, we've talked about this many times on this show but there's some fascinating new research which indicates that there uh, not only uh, is freezing a uh, a practical thing it also there are as you alluded to Dr. Castlebaum some significant uh, potentially significant advantages um to not doing a fresh cycle um, I don't know if the data is, is definitive on that yet, but there has been some interesting research that's been reported in the last several years on that, which would indicate that that this would be a trend for the future as well. All right, let's take a look then. Let's. Uh, what I'd like to do is do a walkthrough and understand the statistics themselves. That's what people are, are really anxious about and want to hear. So first of all, let me give some information about how to excuse me, how to get to these statistics. Um, as we said, the, these statistics are not reflected on the CDC site. They are reflected on the SART site, Society of Assisted Reproductive Technology site, and that site is sart.org. And when you go to that site, it's a, a very clean website. Uh, the horizontal menu across the top uh, has uh, IVF success. And under that, uh, or this is the way I find it, there may be an easier way, but I always go then under that, there is a Find the Clinic tab. And when you click on that, it will take you to um, where you can actually access a particular clinic either via, <coughs> excuse me, either via 
zip code or by state. Um, not by name, which is interesting, but anyway, um, if uh, that would be handy as well because sometimes you're looking, it's just a little quicker. But anyway, um, so if you are uh, looking, then you could type in yours and you can uh, pop to a particular clinic that you, you may be looking at. So that's that's how you actually uh, find a um, uh, find something. All right, so then you go to a clinic, and what is the first thing that you would see on uh, when you're looking at a? Oh, darn! My computer's giving me an error screen right now. That's not your website. That's the way I'm currently. It's my computer. I think I'm pulling up something from the cache. Um, so, what is the first statistic outcome that is? Uh, that is reported under the uh, success stats. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. I should direct that question back to Dr. Van Voorhis. I apologize. Sure. So I, I guess I'd I'd make a, a couple comments before we even get to that. And and the first is that um, as uh, SART, SART uh, Registry Committee has recognized that this is a pretty complex report, and so right at the outset uh, it states that that the data should be interpreted with your physician. So um, we understand that, that there's a lot of uh, nuances to this new report that may, uh, it may be beneficial for patients to go through this with a physician to understand the fine details. Mm -hmm. um, and then one other caveat, I guess, is that still the recommendation is that you not use this report to compare clinics because, again, um, there may be significant differences between clinics and how they practice and, and who they treat uh, if they have exclusionary policies regarding certain types of patients and so on. So that, that's just one caveat to keep in mind that um, the, the, the report is complex and it shouldn't be used to compare clinics. And we're going to actually, let me just interrupt here a second and say we're going to circle back to that in particular um, to, uh, after we discuss the actual layout of the new stats, mm -hmm. I very much want to come back to discussing the how this should be used and how right. it can be uh, things that you should, especially the exclusionary policy of certain clinics and how that can impact the results. So we sure. will absolutely come back to that and discuss. Okay. okay. I jumped the gun. But um, the, right. the, the very first outcome is the cumulative outcome per egg retrieval. And uh, as uh, Art mentioned earlier, the highlighted rate is the singleton uh, uh, delivery rate um, from, from an egg retrieval. So the, the cumulative pregnancy rate we thought was the most important thing to discuss because um, this takes into account both the initial transfer of embryos, whether that be a fresh cycle or a frozen cycle, plus uh, subsequent transfers. Uh, so it takes into account kind of the total, I guess, reproductive potential from a given stimulation cycle, if that makes sense. Um, so it doesn't penalize a, a clinic for transferring one embryo the first time um, it, because any subsequent transfers are also uh, included in the calculation. And that, to me, is the most brilliant thing you guys have done because when we, and one of our mantras here at Creating a Family is to encourage people. 
to uh, consider elective single embryo transfer, assuming that it is yeah. recommended. And 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 we are the uh, patient education or organization, and quite frankly, we have a ways to go in getting patients to accept that. And one mm-hmm. of the things that we've needed is to be able to uh, to to. And I liked how you said that the total reproductive potential of a stimulation cycle. That is exactly what we've needed to be able to show because people still believe, regardless of what we've said, that that they're ultimately their chances. What they care the most about is to end up having a baby. Period. And right. the, they believe that their chances are greater if they will transfer to. And while that may be the case in certain cases, it is, you know, we need evidence to suggest that it's not always the case. The Art Castlebaum, we've really gone a long way, and this new SART format, I think, really shows patients that one plus one is better than two, and that is a fresh plus a frozen when you look at cumulative delivery rates and risks to mom and baby in terms of singleton versus twin delivery. I think the cumulative pregnancy rate really makes the point that limiting the number of elective single embryo transfers is best for patients because really two embryo transfers should really be in a minority of patients, especially under age 35. Absolutely. And it's not only best for patients, it's best for children. You know, that's one of the things we always stress here is that ultimately we're supposed to be keeping the best interest of the child in mind when making any decisions, and ultimately it's best for children. Exactly, yeah. That's another highlight of the report is looking at the term, preterm, and very preterm rates uh, from deliveries at various age groups. So uh, another new aspect of the report. And another welcome one. And and, uh, what he is referring to is that under each, there are the report, the the statistics are broken out into large categories and maybe would it probably would help if we just say what the large categories are, but let me stop a second. And, and under each one of those, um, uh, there there is very uh, highlighted and where it's absolutely very clear to see uh, what the percentage of births are at term, preterm, and then very preterm. Um, so let me back up a second and say let's uh, let's hit the and you guys I hope you have this uh, in front of you uh, the very fir- the, the the statistics are broken out into very large categories and you have to scroll down the page to see each of them so when you're first starting you don't necessarily see the totality so the first one is uh, and I was glad to hear what you said that that is your, the perception that it's the most important and that is the cumulative outcome per egg retrieval. So, and I really like the way you said that, the total reproductive potential um, from a single stimulation cycle. So that's the first general category, and that's using the patient's own eggs. And then the second large one is outcome per, preliminary primary outcome. How does that differ? Preliminary primary outcome per intended retrieval. That's (laughs) the second one. How does that differ from the first? Well, so um, this is the what you might uh, have seen in the past where it was a uh, delivery rate per cycle, uh, meaning uh, it only accounted for the first time an embryo was transferred. So in the past, we used to only count the fresh embryo transfer as the uh, numerator and and the denominator was the number of cycles started. Uh, Now it, it, it encompasses the first embryo transfer um, whether that be a fresh or a frozen. As Dr. Kesselbaum was mentioning, more often we're 
freezing embryos now, so the first transfer is actually a frozen transfer, but that now counts in this primary outcome per intended retrieval. So the oh, primary so outcome is the first embryo transfer done. Okay, and it, regardless of whether it is fresh or frozen. Correct. Got it. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Then the second, uh, the third rather, uh, large category are subsequent outcomes, frozen, basically frozen cycles, from that um, initial uh, uh, stimulation retrieval cycle. Correct. Then, yeah, those are all the other uh, frozen embryo transfers done uh, in in a in a clinic. And the reason it says preliminary is that these are uh, subject to change over time because we recognize that embryos are frozen sometimes for a period of time before they're used. And so next year, this report will be updated, the 2014 data, to include outcomes that occurred in, in 2015. Yeah, that makes good sense. Is, is there really Castle any... Again. Don, I'm yeah, sorry. Our... One of the things that, that this brings up is just the importance of practices to put enough resources behind staying on top of linking um, the initial retrieval with subsequent frozens, which may be down the road and involve some complexity with start reporting. But I think that practices, uh, I think, should really emphasize getting accurate data for patients because this is a very powerful tool with a tremendous number of filters and ways for patients to really do a deep dive to get a real context of, of what do these practices do and what percent of patients do like to single embryo transfer and implantation rates and a whole host of ways of, of patients to become very familiar with, with the look and the feel of, of the different practices that uh, report to SART. Uh, Dr. Kesselbaum, from a patient standpoint, in an effort to simplify looking at these stats, from the first three major groupings, which all have to do with outcomes from an uh, egg retrieval, is there really much reason for a patient to look past the cumulative outcome per intended egg retrieval, which is the first one that that, that comes up? I think that patients approach this from different perspectives. Some people are looking just for very simple numbers, which are easily seen on the initial page, which we've talked about uh, cumulative outcome being a very powerful uh, way to do it. But you can certainly filter the data and look only at patients that had, for instance, an elective single embryo transfer or frozen eggs or frozen embryos. Or if you wanted to look at uh, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis or genetic screening, again, you could filter the data that way. So I think patients can really tailor the information that they're looking for in the SART website for what their own personal interest is and, and get more information about where potentially would be a good fit for them based on what's been reported. Well, you raise a good question, the one that I, I want to, uh, to to provide for our audience. How would, uh, Dr. Castlebaum, people filter for if they're wanting to see the outcome for single embryo transfers? So how would they utilize... There's a filter button right at the very top, and click filter, and then you can either include or exclude first IVF or an elective single embryo transfer or uh, genetic biopsy information. And so it's very simple, uh, very easy to navigate, and congratulations to Dr. Van Voorhees and his, and his team at SART because they've made it very uh, point and click. Yeah, somebody who's recently, um, uh, well, not recently now, it's, it feels recently, a year ago we redid our website. And I can only imagine, ours was 
well, ours is probably more complex than the sheer number of pages, you know, close to 2,000. But nonetheless, <laughs> I imagine this was a, um, a technological uh, challenge, shall we say. Mm. Uh, so, yes, congratulations. Uh, the next large grouping is uh, <clears throat> preliminary live births per patient. Um, and, again, broken out by singletons, twins, uh, triplets, and more. Um, and, uh, Dr. Van Voorhis, how is, how is this useful for patients, and how does this compare to how, what the stats used to be? Yeah, so in contrast to the uh, kind of anchor being stimulated cycle, now the, the uh, denominator is the number of new patients into your center. Um, so it, it, it's um, um, saying how many patients who presented to your clinic for treatment ultimately had a live birth, and it's kind of irrespective, I guess, uh, that the uh, numerator is irrespective of the number of cycles uh, performed. So we recognize that some patients uh, may have to do more than one cycle, stimulated cycle, to ultimately um, achieve a pregnancy, and so that was the purpose of this um, page was to say, um, if patients present to your clinic, what percentage of them ultimately have a live birth? Um, and then at the bottom of that, it, it tells you the n mean number of attempts at egg retrieval and the mean number of transfers uh, done per patient to achieve that live birth. So um, I hope that makes sense, but basically what we're trying to do is say, well, some patients do more than one cycle, and ultimately how many of them are able to achieve a pregnancy uh, or a live birth, I should say, uh, from that center. And, and uh, it seemed to me that that was also when I was noticing significant differences between the old and the new, or maybe I should say the ones that I particularly appreciate. Um, the mean number of uh, cycles of egg retrievals, I think, is immensely helpful because I think that is also information that a lot of patients um, either don't think about or or don't have the information enough information to think about, or perhaps it's it's um, it's optimism going in or naivete um, that 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 the ultimate results are going to come from one uh, cycle. Whereas often they become they come from numer numerous cycles, yeah. So I was uh, appreciative that you included that data as well. Don, I think one of the, one of the things this also points out is that as technology has improved, more and more embryos are making the transition from the single cell stage to the blastocyst stage and being frozen, and so therefore one retrieval could potentially result in sufficient embryos that from one retrieval you could potentially have a couple of children. And this data, I think, really goes a long way to also reflect that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so as well. And to not penalize clinics for that as well, um, which I think is important too, um, or at least to, yeah, so that their data does not, it doesn't encourage uh, fresh transfers when, in fact, frozen might make more sense. Okay. Um, and then the scrolling on down through the, uh, through the data, we then enter donor eggs, use of, of donor eggs, and stats associated with that, both fresh and frozen, uh, and uh, and frozen as well as thawed. 
uh, and then uh, donated embryos. And this is this is a new thing as well. Dr. Kasselbaum, why was the inclusion of, of donated embryos and success rate for transfers uh, important uh, to start including under the SART stats? One of the um, byproducts of labs getting a better at producing high-quality embryos is that there are occasional patients that complete their family and still have embryos remaining in the freezer and make the decision that they would like to um, donate them to another couple, um, which is, is fairly straightforward uh, to do um, once they make that decision. And I think it's great that SART um, has elected to present this data as well, so again, patients can get a handle on if they're considering using uh, donated embryos, what possible pregnancy rates might look like. Dr. Van Voorhees, how does this work from the from the standpoint of tracking? Is it only those embryos that are donated embryos that are transferred at the clinic that are tracked, or does it also follow donated embryos that might be donated to different organizations that facilitate or a different clinic where the the patients are are, are located? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this would track uh, any any embryos that were donated and, and transferred. It would be reported at the clinic level where the transfer occurred. Um, so you would designate this, the source of the embryos and, and report the outcome. So my okay, understanding so is that it would include embryos that were shipped in uh, from, uh, say, an organization, that national organization that collected embryos, if they sent those embryos to my program, we would report that as a donated embryo transfer and report the outcome. Does that discourage it? Let me repeat what you said to make sure I understand. If uh, I am located in California and I mm -hmm. am uh, going to use embryos that were created in uh, Georgia and uh, the embryos have been shipped to my clinic either independently or via an outside organization or agency that is facilitating this. And the clinic in California is the one that has to report success or failure. Did I understand you correctly, Dr. Van Voorhees? Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Does that discourage then clinics, for our, potentially will that discourage clinics from accepting embryos that were created in another clinic because they didn't have any control over the freezing technique or the uh, embryology lab or anything like that? Well, I mean, I hope not. I think that clinics always have the, the uh, need to have the patient's best interest at, at heart, and if, if they feel uncomfortable with the way the embryos were frozen and feel like at their center, they can't get optimal outcomes with those embryos, then I think it's in the patient's best interest maybe not to accept them um, and, and rather encourage the, the patient to go to the clinic where they were frozen. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? So, yeah, I think clinics need to have some discernment in, in terms of what they feel that they can um, safely accept and create a, a high pregnancy rate for their patient so there is some discernment that needs to take place, but um, overall, I, I think that many centers are adopting very similar techniques for freezing embryos, so I think it's going to become more uh, standardized as time goes on. All right. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about understanding the new fertility clinic success statistics. 
Our guests today to talk about this topic are Dr. Art Kasselbaum. He is a reproductive endocrinologist and medical director of RMA Philadelphia in central Pennsylvania. We also have Dr. Brad Van Voorhees. He is a professor and director of reproductive endocrinology and infertility at the University of Iowa School of Medicine. Creating a Family has the largest infertility and adoption communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us. Clout now ranks us as, number two, as the number two online influencer worldwide in the, both the areas of infertility and adoption. There are three ways to connect with us on uh, three ways to connect with us on Facebook. Of course, we have uh, our Facebook page, which you can find at facebook.com slash creatingafamily. We also have a very large and very active online support group, and it is a closed group you have to request to join. And you can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash creatingafamily. Or the easiest way is to just type in the words creating a family in the Facebook search box and both the page and the group pop up. You can like the page and join the group. Uh, you can also connect with me personally. I'm Dawn.Davenport1. We also hang out a lot on Twitter and Pinterest, and you can find us over there at Creating a Family. All right, so we have uh, talked about the, the basic structure of what we've got. We've got, to, and we end with the donated embryos. Uh, I want to talk just a little about the, the filter function. Uh, Dr. Kasselbaum, you mentioned that, uh, and that is something that is, I think it's new. I don't think that I, I never filtered on the old. I don't think you were able to. Uh, were you a, are, were, under the old stats? No. Was it even possible to filter? No, it is a new function. Yeah. Okay. So, which of the of the the filters uh, do you anticipate that people will use, or maybe I guess we should actually um, um, list what the filters are? Um, do you have that in front of you? If not, I, I can't. So, so it's the first cycle of IVF, which is important. A fair amount of data suggests first cycle is the most likely to be successful. Although now with PGS biopsy technology and improve freezing. I think that'll be less over time. Uh, elective single embryo transfer, which I think is very reassuring for patients to click on. And if it's a practice that has success with elective single embryo transfer, I think that speaks volumes for um, achieving pregnancies uh, one at a time, which is clearly preferential. Um, the PGD-PGS button is, uh, and I think Dr. Van Voorhis would, would concur, is still a work in progress. I can say that uh, in 2013, we had about a 5% biopsy rate, and by 2015, it's about 40%. So clearly, it's a technology that practices are embracing so that in even older women, 39-year-olds, 42-year-olds, instead of putting back two and three embryos where you don't know the genetics, you can simply choose one embryo that you know is genetically normal and have, and have exceptionally high pregnancy rates. Um, you can sort by whether you're transferring blastocyst embryos or day three embryos, and uh, frozen eggs, frozen embryos, gestational carriers, and, and what percent uh, get ICSID, and then look at specific ICSID data. So I think it really covers the spectrum of practice and, and is wonderful because patients can tailor the information they're interested in for their own particular circumstances uh, based on these filter buttons. And let me, uh, just if you could answer a question that I have been curious about. This came up on our support group um, recently. Um, and this is for you, Dr. Kasselbaum. In, just kind of roughly, in your opinion, what percentage of transfers now are of day five, six, or uh, versus day three? 
It's very practice dependent. Um, I can tell you in our own group, it's, it's about 80% day five and, and about 20% day three. Uh, I think that the advent of biopsy, which can really only be done on a hatching uh, blast assist on day five or day six, ha has really put an emphasis, a premium, on pushing embryos out that to that point so that you can get genetic information, which has proven to be very, very powerful, particularly as, as women uh, progress from their mid-30s to their early 40s. Yeah, I had, I'll had. i tell you, I had really thought that most practices had moved into where I didn't know if it would be 80 or 75, whatever, but the, the, but the majority. I, I think this, uh, and it was a request that we do a, uh, a show on day three versus day five and six, and I think, I think we did a show on this like five years ago, and I really thought it was probably not that, uh, it was a moot point now, but I, I realize now that, that it probably isn't. We may end up doing... Um, I will be, I'll talk about this with our medical advisory committee. We may end up doing a show on on that, even though I didn't think so. I was just curious. Thank you. <laughs> uh, it's a little off topic, but uh, but one. Um, another feature, uh, Dr. Van Voorhees, on the uh, on the filter is you can filter through uh, uh, cycle type, and something that I did not, I don't think, was available before our information was available for, and that was uh, minimal stimulation or even natural um, uh, uh, stimulation uh, has been included on that. Um, is that uh, it, why was that included? Is that because it's becoming uh, more common or just because there was a request for it or in a, a sense of fairness because it changes the, uh, the outcomes and allows it to be distinguished so that you're not penalized for doing it? Right. I think the latter is really the most important point, that um, some clinics are, are advocates of minimal stimulation or no stimulation uh, for purposes of uh, um, reduced cost for patients, um, and in general, um, minimal stimulation or no stimulation cycles have lower pregnancy rates, and so they wanted not to be penalized for doing something that they were uh, practicing in an effort to reduce cost for patients, mm -hmm. uh, and, and yet it was something, or and that isn't the only reason. Some patients just are, um, are not um, are, are trying to avoid use of high doses of drugs and medications. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, anyway, clinics wanted to not be penalized for uh, performing this type of a cycle. Uh -huh. Yeah, I thought I thought that was. Interesting, and I I wondered if that was the was the yep. reason. Yeah, we re received a question that I had uh, put to the side because I didn't think it was going to be really relevant for this show. Uh, however, I think now after we had uh, talked about the uh, number of tries, the average number of tries it takes IVF cycles by tries, I mean IVF cycles it takes to conceive a pregnancy. We received a question uh, from from Bethany asking about. Uh, study that came out you know, probably within the last six months, we reported on it, and it certainly made a lot of the uh, national press as well, about up to that the average, and I don't remember, uh, I don't think it was the average, but that uh, success rates were greatest for uh, uh, patients that did six tries of IVF. Bethany wanted to uh, get your opinions on that and and how that should influence people's decision, particularly from a, because most people, as she points out, don't have the money for six uh, cycles of IVF. Uh, Dr. Castlebaum, I uh, let me start with you on that one. 
Sure. I think that there's a fair amount of studies going back 10 years that by the time you hit cycle three or cycle four, um, that you see lower pregnancy rates in cycles four, five, and six. The other piece is that this is a very emotionally challenging situation that I found very few patients have the fortitude to keep going after repetitive failures. And, and many couples at that point um, either run out of um, grit or run out of patience or run out of money. Um, and they might also think about you know, other ways to have a family, maybe donor egg or adoption. And so I think it's easy to mathematically say that they should plug away and do six cycles. But I think every single patient is different. And you may have different information as patients come through different cycles. You know, they may have poor egg quality. They may have poor embryo quality. They may have poor embryo development. And they may have some information mm -hmm. gleaned from the IVF cycle itself that can be used to appropriately counsel patients whether they should continue or, or not continue treatment with IVF as, as, as the way to go to uh, start their family or to, to add to their family. Dr. Van Voorhis, do you have anything to add to that? No, I think that was a very uh, good an good answer by uh, Dr. Kasselbaum. Uh, I, th I think the study just points out that um, if one is able to persist, that ultimately each cycle is going to add to the cumulative pregnancy rate. But um, the, the study is a little bit flawed in the sense that it's only those patients who have a, a better prognosis, I guess, who will keep trying. In other words, you may find Very out during the course of the cycle that this patient always makes bad embryos, and, and then there's little point in continuing. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, all right. Now, what I want to do is take a look from, again, uh, from, the, from the patient standpoint. Uh, Dr. Van Voorhis, how does SART recommend, and we're going to come back to in a minute talking about how to use it or, or how not to use it to compare clinics. We are going to come back to that. But for a patient that is uh, wanting to evaluate their clinic and they want to, or a clinic they are considering, and they are wanting to take a look at, uh, at, these, at the SART stats, which we hope that they will, mm -hmm. and we'll certainly do our part in encouraging them to, how do you, incur how do you suggest that a, a patient utilize these stats to evaluate their clinic? Well, I, I, I would, uh, first of all, maybe consider the SART patient predictor as one tool that may help the patient. But if you're looking at a, uh, and we can maybe talk about that later, um, but looking at the clinic's report, I, I think the most important outcome is the one that we highlighted first in the report, which is the um, cumulative singleton delivery rate per egg retrieval. So. I think that would be the number that I would look at uh, first um, to say, well, what are the chances that I'm going to have um, in a, for a given egg retrieval? Uh, how did this clinic do in delivering a, a singleton child, which is, again, the healthiest, uh, more likely to be a, a full-term birth child uh, from that cycle? So that's the number, I guess, that I would look at, and I would you know, of course, look at the age uh, that was appropriate for that patient. So it's divided out by ages. Right. So find, you know, a patient that is more similar to you, which obviously would include Correct. your age. Correct, yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. And Dr. Kasselbaum, uh, would you add anything to that, or would that also be the stat that you would say that's the first, that is the first place to start and the first thing you should consider? Uh, I totally agree with Dr. Van Voorhis. And, again, you should be congratulated. I should start 
to really bring that to the fore for patients to look at. And it's impossible to go on the START website without that highlighted uh, line for single cumulative singleton uh, delivery jumping out at you. There's other nuance that I think accurately reflects how practices do what they do, um, and that is, you know, how many cycles did it take to get pregnant, how many retrievals right. did it take to get pregnant, and, and also what percent elective single embryo transfer based on age, which I think is very telling for not only patient selection, but the quality of the lab and, and the quality of work that, that practices do. Well, yeah, you have to have a lab that can grow uh, good quality embryos so that allows uh, the doctor to feel comfortable recommending a single, an elective single embryo transfer. And so let's walk, uh, Dr. Castlebaum, let's walk, uh, literally walk someone through how to see the percentage of single embryo transfers by their age. So they come to their clinic, uh, we've talked about that, that's at the uh, SART.org and uh, how you find that. You go to your clinic. Now, what would they do to find out the percentage of single embryo transfers? They can sort the data by filter, looking at um, elective single embryo transfer. There yeah. is a filter, and so you can, uh, on the top right, it says filter. Then you would click on ESET, elective single embryo transfer, uh, all cycle types. Uh, I would keep it there, and then you would click on uh, uh, filter, the actual word filter. Yep, and, and then elective the single embryo transfer for include. Yep. Yeah, and that's how you would find the single embryo transfer. And I agree with you. Okay, so the the stats that uh, that we would want people to take a look at are the the first one, which is the cumulative singleton delivery rate, and then the uh, then how many cycles it takes and the percentage of elective single embryo transfers by your age. Um, anything else, unless Dr. Voris, I mean, obviously we want them to look at all of this and mm -hmm. to uh, play around and to filter and, and understand it completely. But for people who want to just do a, 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 a quick review of the most important, uh, other than those three things, uh, uh, Dr. Van Voris, would you suggest anything else? So I'll just add one thing to the um, way to figure out how many elective single embryo transfers are done. If you go under the preliminary primary outcome, um, there's a, a, a button that says uh, show cycle characteristics. Uh, and if you click on that, um, it, it'll tell you the percent of ESET done at that clinic by age. So that's another way to get to it rather than going through the filter is to go to the, oh. not the cumulative one, but the primary outcome per intended retrieval. And then there's a an arrow that says uh, show cycle characteristics. Yeah. And, and that'll give you the percent ESAT, the mean number of embryos transferred, et cetera, at that clinic per age uh, group. Oh. I did not and know it gives that. you also uh, canceled cycles, uh, et cetera. I, I think another thing to look at would be what percent triplets uh, a center has. Uh, I mean, I think that this day and age that should be extremely rare. And so if you saw a clinic with a high triplet rate, um, I'd be nervous about that. Um, well, so actually, that might be another thing to look at. Yeah, that's a great point. And actually, we received a question on that ahead of time. And uh, I'm looking for it from Lori. She said, when reporting triplets and more, do they report full 
let's see, do they report full the number of pregnancies? In other words, do they take into account selective reductions? Um, I think I understand her question. Does that make sense? Uh, and, and I'll direct this to you, Dr. Voris. Do you understand her question? I think I understand it, which is when you're reporting the percentage of triplets, mm-hmm. is that the percentage of triplets conceived or the percentage of triplets carried to term that did not, because with selective reduction, the vast majority of quads and quints and probably triplets mm-hmm. as well um, are selectively reduced. Right. Yeah, I think the the triplets and more would be a delivery rate, so it it would not necessarily reflect the number of cycles where selective reduction was performed. Gotcha. Okay. And see, I can see that as a fallacy because then, from the uh, the clinic standpoint, it uh, the clinics have no choice uh, on whether the patient decides to continue the pregnancy um, or selectively reduce the pregnancy. And, right. Uh, yeah, so that's... That, that's uh, why it's important, as Dr. Kesselbaum mentioned, to, to look at the percent ESET rate, um, the the embryo implantation rate, things of this nature, I think, gets into the more nuances of how effectively the lab is performing. Okay. So. All right, good point. All right, so, um, and Dr. Kesselbaum, I wanted to give you a chance to, to weigh in on anything else in addition to... Um, the factors that we've mentioned, cumulative uh, uh, singleton delivery rate, how many cycles, percent uh, elective single embryo transfer, and the percentage triplets or more. Anything else that you would say you really should consider this as well? I think that um, that it will be more informative in years moving forward, but there's no doubt that uh, pre-implantation genetic screening, that is asking is an embryo genetically normal or not, is, is really becoming a very, very powerful tool and uh, I think SART is going to continue to refine how they show data uh, to separate at a, separate screening from looking for a specific single gene like cystic fibrosis for a pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. And certainly different practices may have different expertise uh, in their ability to do embryo biopsy and do it well. And I think it's an exciting area that will be reflected in SART. And, and Dr. Van Voorhis, again, and his colleagues have done a terrific job at bringing the way that we report data through SART to match up with what actual clinics are doing every day to help couples get pregnant. Well, if we could just say from the from the questions we get and the interest we have, um, I couldn't agree with you more. We get a lot of questions on PGD and PGS, and and uh, so I, I think that you're right. I think it's uh, certainly. I mean, it's it's making its way down to the obviously the patients. I mean, I mean, it's obviously <laughs> the from a medical standpoint, uh, you doctors have been talking about it for a long time, but it's certainly making its way down to the uh, patient community now really strongly as well. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about understanding the new infertility clinic success success statistics. Uh, I wanted to remind you about a few more of our gold sponsors, and it is through their generous support that we are able to bring you this show as well as all the many, many resources that we have on our website and through our organization, Creating a Family. Some of our other wonderful uh, uh, gold sponsors include Manhattan Cryobank. They are dedicated to helping clients have healthy babies by analyzing a client's DNA in combination with the DNA of prospective sperm donors to provide the clinic with a personalized catalog of safer donor matches. We also have 
Snowflake's embryo adoption program in 1997. The first embryo adoption program in the world began by Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They now have had more than 350 babies born. And last but not least, we have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson, a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive law, including providing a gestational surrogacy matching program, as well as legal services for independent surrogacy, egg donation, and embryo donation matters. All right, now I promised you that we were going to come to some of the um, the uh, qualifying data that's given when you are you have to check off that you understand it or you have to check off okay uh, when you are accessing the data. And the first thing that comes up is uh, SART is reminding us that the, sh the report should not be used for comparing clinics. They say that clinics, and I'm going to read directly, may have differences in patient selection, treatment approaches, and cycle reporting practices, which may inflate or lower pregnancy rates relative to other clinics. Please discuss this with your doctor. All right, so I wanted to spend a little time talking about just that. In the past, we have talked about the concern that some clinics simply won't accept certain patients and, and with low prognosis or low uh, chances of success. What we hear, um, the one most commonly that we hear, I think there are, are uh, certainly others, we actually hear two uh, it's, uh, uh, common that and uh, common I don't know, but we, we get people talking about them through our support group. And one is for women 40 or older who want to use their own eggs uh, and clinics saying, no, if, you, if we will accept you into our practice, you have to agree to use donor eggs. And the second one is uh, uh, women who have had uh, X number of failed IVF cycles and uh, not being accepted. Um, so how does this new, uh, how does, is this, are the new stats in any way, do they change the, the fact of, of, of clinics, of how clinics report and how their stats look if they don't accept certain patients? Oh, and then Dr. Let me, Dr. Voris, Devan Voris, let me start with you. Yeah. And then Dr. Castlebaum, I wanted to hear your uh, ideas on this as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I do not think that the newer stats that are reported now will um, compensate for uh, clinic um, selection practices. So, in other words, if a clinic um, excludes certain types of patients from their report or exclude, excludes them from the center, they're still uh, going to look good uh, relative to their peers in the new report just as they did in the old report if that makes sense. So the more exclusionary practices there are within a clinic that is going to uh, boost up their pregnancy rates, uh, delivery rates relative to other clinics. And that's true now and before. Okay. And hence one of the reasons that you need to be careful. Although, and I always feel the need uh, to say this, and I say it on our support group as well when this comes up, it can be argued that a clinic that says, uh, you know, you're 42 and, you know, based on your test results, your chances of getting pregnant using your own eggs are extremely small. And therefore, we don't feel like it is a good medical practice for us to encourage you to go through an IVF cycle with their, your chances of success. So it, it's arguable. Uh, and each patient has to make up their own mind on this, that this is, you could call it discrimination, you could also call it a good medical practice. But, uh, but it's still important for patients to know. And so, Dr. Castlebaum, 
how how what's a patient to do to in in when looking and we all know that patients are if they have a choice of clinics to go to not everyone does but if they do they're going to be looking at these uh, at these data um and, and there's statistics um whether we tell them to compare or not that's something they are going to look at so what's a patient to do in in taking into account a disc- uh, the fact that not all clinics accept all patients i think the most useful thing is to look at, at patients using their own eggs under age 35, because that's a fairly homogeneous group of good prognosis patients who should have a high pregnancy rate, whose clinic should be using a very high percentage of elective single embryo transfer, and, and should be having you know, very, very good singleton outcomes. And so I think if you look at under 35, it's, it's a very powerful way to ask, how does that practice work? Are they using protocols that result in good quality eggs, good quality embryos, and is the lab then able to take those embryos and push them out to high-quality blastocysts so that there's only a need to transfer a single embryo at a time? But the second thing I'd say is I think most physicians that choose reproductive medicine as a career really are interested in treating the patient sitting in front of them. And there may be some patients who've had poor outcomes previously where the decision is jointly made with couples to go ahead and try another cycle and to try a different protocol and to add adjuvants that might improve outcome. And there's other couples that might be sitting in the same chairs, and, and, and frankly, at that point, IVF with their own eggs is not going to be a successful technology. And, and to individualize for each couple sitting with them what the best next step is. So I think that the thought of exclusion, I think, is probably more talked about than, than actually seen in practice. You know, I don't know. Uh, we, I mean, of course, you're right. The people who have faced exclusion may be the ones who are talking about it the most. So that's a fair statement that, you know, the squeaky wheel is the one you hear from the most, but are the people who have a, a complaint. But we do hear from people um, who have said that, uh, uh, again, I think it's fair to note that, that you can call it discrimination, but it also could be trying to deliver hard information to people who are not ready to hear it and, and not being well-received because they're not ready to hear it as well. But if I understood you correctly, uh, Dr. Castlebaum, that a good uh, leveling factor that where you can compare clinics is on their success rate with uh, women under 35 using their own eggs. Uh, I wouldn't encourage anybody to use SART data to compare clinics, but I think it does give a fairly accurate description of the quality of work being done at a particular clinic by looking at women under age 35 using their own eggs. Okay. Fair enough. That's, that's helpful. All right. Um, well, and, and I know you don't have a crystal ball here, but uh, uh, Dr. Van Voorhis, do you think the CDC is going to be following suit and changing their stats to, to look like this, or are we going to have two different stats moving into the future? No, uh, we actually uh, work very closely with the CDC. Uh, there's a really quite a nice uh, partnership going on right now between SART and CDC, and they uh, definitely are planning to change uh, their report ultimately to look very similar to what we're uh, doing. Um, but they're a few years behind, uh, as you can imagine, with government agencies, uh, change takes even longer than it does with SART. <laughs> And, that and, may be and the so greatest th- understatement you've said. <laughs> yes, but, yes, but that they're is they're true. very anxious to to um, in in many ways emulate what we're doing. We're we're we kind of set the 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 pace, but they're uh, hoping to rapidly follow up with a similar type of report. Excellent. Well, 
Thank you so much, both of you, Dr. Brad Van Voris and Dr. Art Kasselbaum, for being our guest today to talk about this is a really important topic. Uh, the statistics are something that uh, in, a, in an era where we feel, in an area where many patients feel like they have very little control, this gives them some information that, that, that makes them, uh, gives them peace in, in moving forward. Let me mention that Creating a Family is in the process of publishing a multimedia guide on how to choose an infertility clinic. In fact, we've been holding it up, to be honest, until the new stats were released because we are going we want to include this information in the guide because we do think it is important. And uh, that uh, we are we don't have a firm date. It will probably be published within the month. And uh, I, I strongly recommend people to consider it. It is a, going to be a great resource. And for everyone who is listening today, if you have gotten something out of this show, do us a favor and please pop over to iTunes and give us a rating. It could be either a star rating or if you're really feeling generous, you can write a comment. Uh, this show is by far the top-rated show uh, in these areas. In fact, we're listed under What's Hot for Families in on the iTunes homepage as a result. And iTunes utilizes the results, the, 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 the ratings, and that's how they know um, although we hope that there, there are people who are listening to our show, the reality is they're really using your comments and your ratings. It would really uh, do, it would help us out a lot, and we would really appreciate it. Uh, if you want to participate in a discussion of the topic of this show, check out my blog tomorrow at creatingafamily.org slash blog. Let's keep the ideas coming and the discussion going. I know that people are going to want to get some inf- more information. The first thing you're going to want to do is pop over to the Society of Assisted Reproductive Technology website and look at these new stats and marvel at them because they really are a thing of beauty. Uh, and that website is S-A-R-T. And I know that you also are going to want to uh, get more information about uh, Dr. Art Kasselbaum, and you can get information about him and his practice at rmaspecialist.com. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I am going to see you all next week. And now, an ad from Dad. All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's what, man. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.